Welcome back to the Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm the host for this podcast, and I'm glad that you've joined with me again today for this week's message. We're continuing our series this month called Anticipating Christ. One of the classic Christmas movies of all time is the movie It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. The movie was released on December 20th, 1946. It was set in Bedford Falls, New York. Angel's second class, Clarence Oddbody, had been sent to Earth because 38-year-old George Bailey was thinking about taking his own life. George had been running the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, but his uncle Billy had lost $8,000 he was supposed to deposit in the bank. George goes to Henry Potter to ask for a loan. Potter is the wealthiest, grumpiest, and meanest man in town. Potter tells him he is worth more dead than alive and calls the police on him for misappropriation of funds. George flees, gets drunk at a bar, and prays in vain for help. Suicidal, he goes to a nearby bridge, <clears throat> but before he can jump, the angel Clarence dives into the river. George leaps in and rescues him. When George says he wishes he had never been born, Clarence shows him what the world would have been like if he had never existed. The town of Bedford Falls would have become Pottersville, an unsavory town occupied by sleazy entertainment venues, crime, and amoral people. The lives George would have touched are vastly different. For example, the druggist Mr. Gower was imprisoned for manslaughter since George was not around to prevent him from poisoning some pills accidentally. <clears throat> George's mother doesn't know him and reveals that Billy was institutionalized after the building and loan failed. Bailey Park is a cemetery where George discovers young Harry's grave. Since George did not save Harry, Harry was not there to save the soldiers on the ship during the war. <clears throat> George finds that Mary is a spinster librarian, and when he claims to be her husband, she screams for the police, and George runs away. The story is about looking at what the world would be like if you had never existed. It's about considering what our world would be missing if your impact and your influence were removed. And within this story, George Bailey is trying to figure out who he really is. 
<clears throat> These are questions we reflect on at Christmas. George Bailey had been so depressed, he wished he had never been born. What would our world be like if Jesus had never been born? And as George Bailey was trying to figure out who he was and who Clarence was, we ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Who is he really? How do we understand him and his mission? The Old Testament prophecies give us clues to the true identity of the Messiah, who he would be and what he would do. <clears throat> One of the key messianic psalms that the Jewish people kept going back to <clears throat> was Psalm 110. Psalm 110 tells us that the coming Messiah will be the king, the priest, and the judge. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. First of all, in Psalm 110, the Messiah is described as the king. Verses 1 to 3 says the Lord will extend his mighty scepter to him. The scepter was the symbol of the king. It was a symbol of his authority and his legitimacy to rule over the people. The scepter was used to issue his decrees and his laws that the people had to follow. God is giving the Messiah the scepter to rule over the people. This is made clear in verses 2 and 3, where we are told he will rule in the midst of his enemies and he will have troops to direct at his disposal to send in the battle. The Messiah is the commander-in-chief. When he tells the soldiers to go into battle, they go into battle. There is a chain of command, and he is at the top of that chain. He tells the soldiers where to go and when to go, and they enter the fight on his command. The first verse of this psalm is one of the Old Testament verses that is quoted most often in the New Testament. Jesus quoted it in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 45, showing how David called the Messiah Lord, recognizing that the Messiah was greater than David himself. In Acts 2, 34 and 35, Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost, explaining how David prophesied about the deity and ascension of Jesus. The Apostle Paul referred to it in 1 Corinthians 15.25, explaining the rule and dominion of Jesus the Messiah. 
And the author of Hebrews quotes it in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13, referring to the superiority of Jesus the Messiah over any angel and explaining the power and the reign of Jesus the Messiah. This was one of the most important Old Testament passages that the Jewish people read in trying to understand the identity of the Messiah. And like their highly revered King David, the Messiah would also be a king, an even greater king, who would rule over all and set everything right again. The second aspect of the Messiah's identity that we see in Psalm 110 is that he is a priest. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this mysterious priest who only shows up very briefly one time in the Bible in Genesis 14. After Abraham had defeated the confederation of kings who took his nephew Lot captive, he met with this priest named Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, and who was also king over the city of Salem or Jerusalem. As a priest, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, demonstrating his greatness over him. Abraham then gave Melchizedek a tithe of the spoils he had won in battle. There's no mention of any father or mother of Melchizedek, and he appears without any genealogy. It's interesting that the Messiah, or the psalmist, compares the Messiah to a priest who has only one bit part in the Bible, but whom it turns out is actually very important. He is so important, in fact, that the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament refers to him five times. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10 says this. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in Psalm 110. Jesus is the one the psalmist was writing about. And part of his role as the Messiah is to be our priest, the one who goes between us and God, who offers sacrifices for us to God, who prays for us to God, who asks God to forgive us, and who restores our relationship with God. Psalm 110 says he is not a temporary priest. He is an eternal priest. He will be our priest forever. 
The third part of the Messiah's identity that is described in Psalm 110 is that he is also a judge. Verses 5 through 7 says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. In the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this passage, he says Jesus is the judge of the whole world. He is so powerful that he will crush kings. All nations shall feel his power and either yield to it joyfully or be crushed before it. He will judge the nations and render verdicts on how they have behaved, how they have treated their people, and how they have treated their enemies. All of the Messiah's opponents will fall and be defeated by him. If the kings and rulers of the world oppose him, they will be overwhelmingly defeated. All of their forces will be utterly destroyed. No one will be victorious over him. You don't want to pick a fight with the Messiah, because if you do, you will lose. He will strike at the greatest powers which resist him and wound not merely common people, but those who rule and reign. The monarchs of the strongest nations on earth will not be able to escape the sword of the Lord, nor shall the dreaded spiritual prince who rules over the children of disobedience be able to escape without a deadly wound. Whoever picks a fight with the Messiah will lose. The Messiah is rendering judgment on our world. The Messiah is the perfect judge. But what does a perfect judge do? A perfect judge makes no mistakes in carrying out his or her duties. Judges are responsible for signing warrants for people's arrests when there is justification to do so. Judges sign search warrants when there is reasonable cause. Judges have the power to punish misconduct occurring within a courtroom, to punish violations of court orders, and to enforce an order to make a person refrain from doing something. A judge is to be impartial, fair, and unbiased in following the laws that have been set forth. Judges listen to all the evidence without passing judgment until relevant information has been heard. In cases without a jury, the judge is also the finder of fact. A judge officially conducts court proceedings. Judges must be impartial and strive to properly interpret the meaning, significance, and implications of the law. Judges must also recognize that justice means more than just interpreting the law. They must also show compassion and understanding for the people on both sides of the case. When a case first comes to the court, the judge must decide whether there is enough evidence to support a reasonable belief that a crime has occurred and also that the person questioned has committed that crime. After all the evidence has been presented and both cases have been completed, the judge issues the final verdict. 
The judge determines who is guilty and who is not. The judge also determines the sentence, what the punishment will be, and if a fine should be paid. A perfect judge will do all of this perfectly. The Messiah is the perfect judge. Nobody can pull a fast one on a perfect judge. Nobody can cover up evidence or only present the best part of their case. The perfect judge sees and hears everything, so nothing will be covered up. A perfect judge is caring, impartial, and fair. There is no way to argue with a perfect ruling from the perfect judge. It cannot be improved upon. It cannot be appealed. There is no need for an appeal. Throughout its history, Israel had known kings and priests and judges. They had never known anyone who was all three. Each one of these leadership positions was pretty demanding in and of itself. For one person to take on all three of these responsibilities would be a big load to carry. Normally, you would not saddle any one individual with such a big burden. But this is not a burden at all for the Messiah. It is not too heavy for him. It's not too taxing. It's not too tiring. This is his calling. He has the knowledge, the wisdom, the skills, and the abilities to do all of these and more. He is more amazing than anyone you have ever met or read about. His gifts exceed your imagination, and that is why he is the Messiah. The Jewish people only had the Old Testament, so they were left to dream and imagine and wonder what he would be like. We have the benefit of having the New Testament, which identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He is the one who has fulfilled some of these prophecies, and when he comes again in the future, he will fulfill the rest of the prophecies. Jesus is greater than anyone who ever came before and everyone who has come since. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. Sometimes we need these reminders about who the Messiah is and why this is so important. Sometimes we are like George Bailey. We work so hard for our families, our friends, and our businesses, and sometimes we wonder if we're making any difference. Sometimes we get down and wish we had not been born at all. Sometimes we don't see the impact we are having in the world. So sometimes God sends us reminders, people or angels like Clarence, to encourage us to remember who we really are and why we are here. All of our lives matter and all of our lives count. And if you believe in the Messiah, the impact of your life will live beyond the number of your days. Psalm 110 was written to let people know who the Messiah would be when he came. And today we read it to remind ourselves of who the Messiah is. The New Testament identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and we want you to believe in him this Christmas. 
The more we begin to understand him as our king, our priest, and our judge, the more we understand who we really are and how we have been called to live our lives for him. God bless. Stay safe. See you soon.